So when you come to a, a tough section on a road or trail while riding your adventure motorcycle, you may ask yourself, should I stand or should I sit? Maybe you should just sit and paddle your way across. That's the topic of today. We're going to learn the facts about standing, sitting, what's happening when we do, and as well, among many other things, why traction has more to do with the direction your wheels are pointed than anything else. This and a whole lot more coming up today with two guests, one expert rider and trainer, the other a rocket scientist and physics expert. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Oh. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Well, when you get into the rough stuff with an adventure motorcycle, you can get all kinds of opinions on how to handle it. Some will say stand up because when you stand up, you're on the pegs and that lowers your center of gravity, makes you more stable. Another may tell you that, uh, no, that doesn't lower your center of gravity. It raises your center of mass. Center of gravity, center of mass. What are we talking about here? What exactly does standing on your pegs do for you as a rider? And is standing better than sitting or does it depend on your skill level or maybe your speed? All great questions. And that's just some of what we're going to talk about today. And from that, you should be able to make informed decisions the next time you pack your motorcycle and sort of understand the effects of what you've packed before you even get on the bike. This episode is about setting the record straight because there's so many opinions out there and many seem to sound good while others are confusing and sound confusing. So what we want is the facts. We want the facts. And the only way to get the facts, of course, is to get experts in the field. And that's what we're doing today. We have two experts. One is an expert rider, accomplished top-level racer. He's a riding instructor as well as a KTM ambassador. It's Chris Birch. Chris brings to the table a vast and intricate knowledge of what works and what doesn't while riding. He knows by feel, by intuition, by his gut what works. He knows how to make a bike do exactly what he wants it to do, at least most of the time, which puts him on the podium for races like Roof of Africa and Red Bull Maniacs and, and many more. The other is a retired system engineer from the European equivalent of NASA, which is the ESA, European Space Agency, where he worked on spacecrafts of varying degrees in design and testing. That's a really uncomplicated stab at a very complex job, but it's a job that requires the mastery of physics. And that's what we need here today. Someone that can explain what is really happening as opposed to what we feel like is happening. Hence, the facts. And that is Mark Nesbitt. Now, as an added bonus, Mark is not only a rocket scientist, he's a rider, an adventure rider, no less. So he not only specializes in physics, but he understands motorcycles, he understands motorcycle riding, and our passion for riding. Mark is one of us. So together, over the next hour or so, we're going to bust some myths, and we're going to get some concepts sorted out for good on standing or sitting on our motorcycles. Because I believe that if we understand why we're doing something, we no longer have to remember the order and sequence of what we do. It's going to come natural, or you can figure it out because you actually understand why you're doing what you're doing. 
Now, before we get going, I want to set the tone here. At least I want to set some parameters for this conversation. First, the scope of this conversation. Although it's very technical, we're going to keep it in layman's terms, at least as much as possible, meaning simplify everything for easy understanding. Second, we're talking about riding adventure motorcycles. We're not talking about trials bikes or dirt bikes. And that matters because adventure, uh, adventure bikes tend to be much heavier and larger than dirt bikes and are totally different animals than trials bikes. And along with that, we're talking about slow speed riding. Um, maybe what I should say is slow speed maneuvering to hone in on that point. Technical riding, the stuff that is arguably the most difficult to master because at low speeds, balance and momentum are easily upset. So adventure motorcycles and slow speed maneuvering. Chris, Mark, welcome back. Uh, thank you very much Hi. for having us back. Hi, Jim. Yeah, it's been a few months, but it's nice to chat to you again. Chris, did you have a busy summer? I mean, your, your summer is over in New Zealand, and just as we start to enter ours in northern latitudes. Yeah, we had a, a very, very busy summer. Um, obviously, uh, New Zealand's been a bit late to the party with COVID. We kept it out for a long time, um, but it's kind of... Uh, free ranging through uh, New Zealand at the moment, which has made it quite difficult for someone that organizes events and goes on big motorcycle tours and that sort of thing. Mm. But uh, irrespective of that, we've had a, a really, really good summer. Um, I've just come back from a, a 10 day, four and a half thousand K as much off road as possible trip on the 10, oh, sorry, on the 1290 Super Adventure R. So yeah, nothing to complain about on this side. Plenty of riding. Four and a half thousand kilometers. Where'd you go? Um, we organized a three-day uh, adventure bike ride out, so uh, an organized ride, but we organized it in, in Dunedin, which is literally, almost literally the complete opposite end of the country to where I live. Um, even going the main roads, it's a 1,500-kilometer drive away. Um, but rather than driving, we decided to ride the motorbikes and take the interesting way and make that take three days to get down. Wow. So it was a three-day ride to do a three-day ride and then a four-day ride to get home. So good <laughs> so, times. <laughs> so it's all off-road. I mean, at least the one direction or mostly. Uh, so the event itself was all, I think we did about 70 Ks of road, of tar seal road riding in, in three days. Wow. Um, the rest was all just uh, backcountry tracks and gravel dirt roads. On the way down there and on the way back, we have to do a bit of road riding to sort of, to connect things up. But uh, we tried to link together uh, all the, the good tracks that I know and uh, link them together with the sort of backcountry dirt roads. And the goal was just to avoid State Highway 1 as much as possible. We did a pretty good job of it. We did some some good exploring. Ended up getting, well, not lost, but, you know, arriving in the back of farms and uh, having to carry bikes over logs and push through rivers and good, yeah, real real adventure stuff. It does sound like fun. What do you, who do you get out for for this sort of event? Is it the average motorcycle rider or are these hardcore riders? Uh, in New Zealand, there's kind of a, a quite a big core group of uh, adventure guys that have kind of ridden enduros back in the days and, uh, you know, older guys but that have quite a lot of off-road experience. And we drag a lot of those guys into these events. Uh, they're the guys that seem, sort of seem to jump on it. And 
over here, it's, uh, I'm sure it's the same in, in most countries. It's all about the access. So we, when we run these organized rides, we're going to approach farmers. So we can, you know, we can link this awesome public access track, go through this big station and link up with that public access track. And that's really what the guys are after that, uh, being able to, uh, go places on their motorbikes that they, they normally can't. And, you know, we, we throw in the, the, the accommodation and the food and a route sheet and everything. So they, uh, they just show up, switch their brains off and just go riding for three days and have a good time. That sounds like fun. Mark, how about you? Have you been riding? Uh, we've had some, it's been winter for us and we've had some actually fairly bad weather over the last uh, couple of months. So with the combination of moving house and the, ba- and the snow, I think I've had the bike out like three times in the last month. <laughs> mm. That's so not bad not as, though, now, for winter. Now the season's changing, so it should be. Yeah, that's the same as us. We're, we're coming into spring now. A very exciting time of year, all the yeah. possibilities of spring. It's uh, it's great. Hey, hey, the last time we spoke, we talked about the physics behind peg weighting at speed. That's going down the road, obviously. So today I want to talk about the whole stand or not to stand. And I know we've touched on this before on Adventure Rider Radio. So a common school of thought is just to to set us on the track here. At slow speeds, when the going gets rough, the wise rider stands up on the foot pegs. Now, I want to dig into this to see if it holds true universally and also to see what's actually happening here behind it. So we'll try and keep this in layman's terms because only one of us is a rocket scientist. And uh, and uh, the scope of the show, we want it to be understandable to the average rider without having to take a, an extra course in physics just to follow along with what we're talking about. Um, and in fact, that's the point of what we're doing, to simplify things. So um, I, I believe in in my mind, if we, if we understand why we do things, then it becomes much easier to remember what you're doing rather than trying to remember a sequence, you know, that you don't understand why you're doing it. You know, you, you press button one and then button four and you pull lever five. Uh, instead of trying to do that sort of thing, if you understand what's going on, then you don't have to figure all that out. You'll, you'll know what to do and you'll be able to figure out yourself what to do as the situations change. And, and that's what we're talking about here today. So, Chris, I, I want to start with you because you are a renowned top racer, internationally recognized for um, your racing and instructing as well and riding uh, instruction. So you teach riders both new and, and inexperienced, uh, sorry, both uh, inexperienced and experienced riders. So what do you tell your students? Do they stand or do they sit? It's not that simple. Um, what I tell my students is that you should become a really well-practiced, proficient rider in seated techniques, and you should become a really practiced and efficient rider in standing techniques. And there's times where you definitely need to be standing up, and there's times where it's definitely beneficial to be sitting down. And coming from a more enduro racing background sort of thing, uh, it was interesting sort of tra- you know, transitioning into adventure riding 10 years ago and go, man, why are you guys standing up all the time? Like, what a waste of time. Uh, so I think maybe I have a, an opinion that's a little bit uh, counter to a lot of what's out there. Um, my, my frame of mind is you should stand up when you need to stand up, and you should sit down when you should sit down, and you should put equal amounts of effort and training into both sides of it so that you're as comfortable in either aspect and you can deploy whichever technique is relevant to your situation. But it seems to me there's a a big train of thought that, you know, stand up, stand up, stand up. You must stand up. 
And then we get a lot of guys coming to schools and they say, yep, I, whenever, whenever I get to any dirt road, any gravel road, I stand up. I'm like, wow, that must be exhausting. Um, why don't you try sitting down? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't feel in control when I sit down. Well, how much practice have you done sitting down? Have you worked on your sitting techniques? Nope. No, I just stand up all the time. Okay. That's why you're better at standing up all the time. <laughs> uh, so I'm really interested to hear from Mark's side of things, um, you know, the pros and cons to both. And for me, uh, I keep trying to reference everything I teach back to what I consider to be best practice in off-road motorcycle riding which is what the guys in the World Enduro Champs are doing. It's what the guys are doing in the Dakar Rally, the World Rally Championships, World Motocross Champs, that sort of thing. Um, whether you want to go that fast or not, those guys represent the pinnacle of off-road motorcycle riding technique. And you'll see a lot of bums on seats in all those situations. Mark, you've got the background understanding physics at a really high level. Coming from a, a rocket scientist background, do you dissect everything you do on a motorcycle to make sure you're doing the the, the correct thing? I, uh, to be quite honest, I do. Yeah, do. Okay. <laughs> I, I I pretty much dissect everything I do. Um, it's just the way my head works. So if I want to understand what I'm doing when I'm riding, I have to kind of think about it and try to work out firstly what I think is happening. Uh, in an intuitive sense, and then secondly, okay, that's what I, that's what my intuition says. But what's really happening? And I think therein lies the difference that your what you think you're doing with your body and moving your weight around, etc. There's so many complicated things happening. You're touching the bars, you're touching the seat, you're pressing your knees against the side of the bike, you're putting weight on the pegs really what's making a difference and that's the interesting thing to try to drive down to is is all these things are happening but what is the one that's making the difference and that is exactly what we're after so now in in your opinion then knowing what you know about physics the saying that i gave you there at the start when i was saying that the common school of thought is that at slow speeds when the going gets tough the wise rider should stand up on the pegs do you agree with that or disagree with that statement I would agree with it in, um, as Chris said, exactly. It's complicated. If you are standing, you have a much more control over which peg you are applying weight to because you're literally thinking about where the weight goes through your feet. If you're sitting, you're going to do the same thing, but you haven't got such an intuitive control of it. At the end, all that matters is where your centre of gravity is relative to the centre of the bike. And if you're sitting, you're going to move it one way or another. And if you're standing, you're going to move it one way or another. It just depends on how you're applying that force to the bike. But the effect, the effect is always going to be the same. Well, let's look, look at the problem that we're trying to overcome, which I see it as the inherent instability of the motorcycle at low speeds, sort of combined with rough terrain and maybe having or, or maybe not having continuous traction. Does everybody agree with that? A absolutely, yeah. Yep, for sure. I think uh, for me, a huge factor and something that we haven't mentioned so far, uh, and mm -hmm. I should sort of explain my position a bit further, the type of bike that you're riding has a huge, huge effect on this. So if I'm riding my big bike, my 1290, 
I'm going to go into a rough section of trail, tight corners, low speed stuff. I'll be standing up for sure, 100%. Um, if I'm going into there on a, a lighter bike and say like a 450, that's where it gets way more blurry. There's a much greater chance you'll see my butt on the seat. And the, the type of bike that you're riding has a, a very, very big effect on this. And my personal opinion, this is just a bit ranty, um, the whole mindset of you must stand up for uh, uh, adventure bikes, I think that came from BMWs. Um, you know, BMW rider training was well ahead of, it probably is still well ahead of every other brand. Um, but like a, a big 1200 GS, uh, the, the layout of that bike, it makes you sit behind the swing arm pivot. So same thing on my uh, on my twelve ninety, especially if I'm running the standard seat, I can't sit in front of the foot pegs or over the foot pegs. It pushes me a bit further back. So therefore, I can't corner that bike in the same way sitting down that I can say a, a, an enduro bike, where I can sit right up on the gas tank and get right up there yeah. and 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 rail the bike through a turn. And again, with a with a with a lighter bike, you've got a higher you know the the, the weight distrib- the mass distribution through the lighter bike um is a bit more spread through the the height of the bike so the c of g is a little bit higher and i think maybe it's something to do with the c of g of the bike the center of gravity of the bike is low and if you really want to work that thing then when you've got low traction you need to stand up to give to give a higher center of gravity to have more control over it Okay, hang, hang on one second here. Let's talk about center of gravity and center of mass because this is another thing you hear often when people start talking about standing up. Many riding instructors claim that standing lowers the center of gravity. You lifted your butt off your seat and you're standing on the pegs, while others say that it lowers the center of mass and others claim that standing raises the center of gravity. Mark, maybe you could explain what the center of gravity and the center of mass are in very yeah. simple layman's short explanation <laughs> and then the difference between it's, it's the two. Really, it's really easy in layman's terms because the center of mass and the center of gravity are the same thing. Aha. Uh-huh. So wherever the center of mass of the bike is and the rider combined, if you imagine that you combine the weight of the bike and the weight of the rider into where their average kind of position would be, which will be somewhere in the middle of the two, maybe around your belly, you know, or, or around just above the seat, where the weight of the bike and the weight of the rider combine. It's, if they were just one solid lump, that's where they would be. That's the centre of mass. And you're saying the centre of mass and the centre of gravity are the same thing? Yes, and gravity works on that centre of mass to pull it one way or another. So the centre of gravity and the centre of mass are the same thing. Okay, well, that's that. That solves another argument right there. So, and, and are they? Is, is it the same with all physics when you're talking about the center of mass, center of gravity? It's it's just that we're talking about the yeah. same thing, no matter what. Mass is the, the the property that a bike has or a rider has that just gives it. Um, it's the stuff you add up all the stuff it's made from, and it and you come up with a mass. So the more stuff it's made from, the higher the mass, and then gravity gravity works on that mass and pulls it towards the ground. And the strength of gravity is always the same. So the center of mass and the center of gravity are the same thing. The mass is kind of dynamic. It'll move from side to side. And as it moves one side of the balance point or the other side of the balance point, gravity will start to pull it down. 
Okay, and then that's how you fall over by having it go too far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think, it, I think we should uh, just take a pause there, and, and uh, it's really important that we actually manage to emphatically answer one question today, at least. So that was the one thing we got. We've we've actually answered one question so far. I think we're going to get pretty deep and pretty confused at some point, but we, at least we got one thing answered correctly. <laughs> you know, I appreciate that, Chris. That, that is so true. The center of mass and center of gravity are the same thing. Yeah. And that <sighs> point, solved. that place, that point is where if you take up, if you add up all the little bits of weight around the bike and around the rider, you add up the helmet, you add up the bolts, you add up the, the indicators, you add up the weight of the rubber. If you, if you try to push that all into the average place where all of that, um, you know, if you had one big solid lump of lead, it would act the same way as all those other things spread around. That's the center of mass. Mm. So it's like you pull all the weight, you pull all the weight into the, the average point into the average place. And Chris, you feel really good about this. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah. So do I, because it's it is, it's something you hear a lot, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and uh, it reflects into sort of what, uh, I've done a little bit of work with KTM sort of R&D stuff. And what's, what they're working on is uh, mass centralization. So trying to get all the little bits of the engine and the package to be as close to the center as possible. And when we do our riding schools, uh, one of the things we talk about is we have our, our normal, everything's going great riding position. And then we have what I call the O-S-H-I-T position, which is when you're <laughs> squatting down significantly closer to the bike, crouch, almost like crouching down into it, which I guess is lowering that center of mass, center of gravity, which we now know is the same thing. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. Um, stick around because when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, how weight affects the packing of your motorcycle and, and generally the handling of the motorcycle. There's, there's a lot in here. Stay with us. Back in uh, March 2019, we had a couple on the show that uh, they'd traveled the world two up on a KTM 640 adventure. It was Heidi and David Winters. Now, it was on that trip that David broke his wrist while he was riding. Anyway, um, so David's trying to ride this bike because he's the rider of the bike. Heidi's the pillion. He's got a broken wrist and, and he's trying to use a throttle lock. And I think he had the one that, that sort of screws onto the end of the handlebar. But anyway, it was a real pain for him. Drove him nuts. When they got back, he was set to find a better throttle lock. Couldn't find it. So he decides to make his own, which is what he did. He invented the Atlas throttle lock. It is an amazing, beautifully crafted piece of equipment that clamps onto your handlebar. It's got two buttons on it. They both work in a firm, positive way that give you the just the full feedback. It always makes me think of Apple products because it gives you the full feedback that you want when you're engaging or disengaging. It is a beautiful piece of equipment. And if you don't know what a throttle lock is, it doesn't lock your throttle so someone doesn't steal your bike. It holds your throttle position so you can relax your hand and wrist and arm. And it, it makes riding so much nicer. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. See and be seen 
That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops makes all kinds of lighting products, especially designed for us riders. From auxiliary lighting to LED headlights to specialty things like their Evo safety turn signals. These I love. Um, I have them on my bike. The Evo safety turn signal inserts, um, they, they replace your stock turn signals front and back. And, you know, most most stock to turn signals, they only come on when you put your signal on. They're not actually driving lights. So these become driving lights in the front. They're super bright white driving lights. In the back, they're red. Uh, in the front, they turn orange and become signals when you put your signal on. And in the back, they also signal, but when you they, uh, they signal in red and they come on with your brakes and they are stunningly bright. Like talk about seeing, being seen. These things punch holes through the darkness and they command attention in the daytime. So making drivers aware of you is is obviously a huge part of road safety. The Evo Safety Turn Signal Inserts. I'm going to give you the website for it. While you're there at the website, have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch Auxiliary Lights. These little things, these are small enough to fit just about anywhere on any bike because a lot of bikes you have trouble fitting the lights in. These little things will fit in anywhere and they are powerhouses. Great for daytime awareness and stunning on a dark road. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. If you ride an adventure bike, your foot pegs should be important to you. For comfort on the road, for grip on the dirt, they need to be ultra tough, yet designed specifically for how you ride. IMS Products has been making motorcycle parts since 1976. And over those years, IMS has become well-known in the race pits uh, around the world because racers want the best. And now us adventure riders can have that too through IMS Products and their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. They're designed specifically for your style of riding. They've got different models to choose from. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio imsproducts.com. You know, it's interesting because when you look at adventure bikes, we we bolt on all these extra things and everything that we do to the bike changes the handling of the motorcycle. And this is uh, something that I think is often overlooked. And if you think of the the motorcycle kind of like a canoe, because you're talking about the mass centralization of putting the heavy stuff or all, as much as you can, as close to the center as possible, that changes the, the dynamics and I have to be careful here because we have Mark here, but it changes the, the dynamics of the motorcycle in a way, it, it would be sort of like a canoe. If you put a canoe in the water and you went through waves with a bunch of weight in the middle of the canoe, the canoe will tend to buoy up over the waves because there's nothing in the bow and stern, so it floats up easily. But if you load the bow and stern heavily with weight, it will plow through the waves and it also becomes sort of an unwieldy craft. Does, does this make sense, Mark? Mm-hmm. This, yeah, you, you're exactly hitting it. Um, so there's two things to think about. There is the mass, and the mass is simply adding up all the little bits that make the bike and the rider and adding up and seeing what the weight is. And maybe the combined weight is 250 kilos or 400 pounds or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. The question is then, when you add all of that up, you could imagine that you could replace all of that with just a big lump of lead of the same weight. So you kind of make that mass as small as possible, and that big lump of lead of the same weight has the same mass, has the same effect on the ground, if you like. The gravity will pull on it in the same way. Mm -hmm. The big difference, which is exactly what you're talking about, Jim, 
is how that mass is distributed around the whole structure. And if all that mass is at the edges of the structure, the centre of mass, the, the effective mass in the centre, would still be the same. So the centre of gravity would still be the same. The difference is that when you try to roll that thing, when you try to pitch it up and down, or you try to roll it side to side, it has more inertia when it tries to turn. So the further away the real mass is from the centre of mass, the harder it is to move it round in circles, up and down or round and round. Changing direction or speed. And it's like in an aircraft, you know, if you, if all the weight and payload of an aircraft is in the middle, in the centre, it'll turn, it'll pitch up and down very quickly and easily, and it'll roll from side to side very easily and quickly. But if you take that same weight, it's, it's not going to get any heavier, but you put it all at the edges, you put it as big lumps of weight at the end of the wings and the big lumps of weight at the nose and a big lump of weight at the tail, it'll be much harder to pitch it up so, and to roll it. I, I jumped on a guy's bike on this last ride we did uh, to ride up a hill for him. And he had all his gear for the trip in a ginormous great big tail bag. Mm-hmm. And my lord, that bike was hard to ride up a rocky hill. Yeah. Because yeah. all the weight was as far away from the centre of mass as it could possibly be. <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's changed the centre of mass, hasn't it? It's actually moved it rearward. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. 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 yeah but also, even if you even if you took that weight and put half of it forward and half of it backwards. Yeah, it becomes a slug. It's still difficult to make it pitch up and down. Then. Yeah. It doesn't want to roll. So, you know, the bike has to pitch forward and backwards to go over bumps and uphills and downhills, and it has to be able to lean from side to side to corner. If the mass is spread actually too far away from the centre of mass, it's very difficult. It takes more time for it to make those movements to roll and to pitch up and down. So you're talking about two things. You're talking about centre of mass and centre of gravity, which we've the one thing we achieved, Chris, they're the same thing. Um, the other important thing is how the mass is distributed around the centre of mass or centre of gravity. And if all the mass is far away from it, the average position can still be the same, but any control inputs you try to give just take longer because you've got much more stuff to roll that's much further away from the centre. If everything, like you're talking about the KTM design, where you try and bring everything centralised, it's because you're trying to bring all that mass close to the centre of mass, centre of gravity, so that when it moves from side to side or pitches up and down, it does it very easily and very quickly. So that design engineer must cry when he sees someone take their new design and go and strap a ginormous top box to the back. Yeah. It's like like everything. Yeah. It's like, imagine a... Just a normal Boeing passenger plane, everybody's sitting in the middle of the fuselage, all the weights across the down the whole tube, those wings are going to pitch up and down really easily. If you took all the passengers and you sat half out on one wing and half out on the other, and mm. then tried to roll, it would take much more force. Mm-hmm. Even though the mass is the same, the center of mass is the same, the center of gravity is the same, but the mass is distributed much further away from it. So it takes much more work to roll them around. And, and that's why our fuel tanks are low on our 790s, 890s and 1290s now. 
that's why it's so beautiful, eh, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it really makes and, a difference, eh? And without trying to be that guy, um, you also I also find I can't notice how much fuel's in my tank now from fuel. No. Whereas on my 1090, I knew exactly how much fuel was and just I didn't need to look at the fuel gauge. I could feel it. Yeah. Because that, and this is yeah. Yeah, the KLR to the to the F800 was the same. A huge yeah, difference. Yeah. Yeah, low gas tank. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to BMWs. Go back to the old uh, 800 Paris-Dakar boxer, you know, with the low, really low swung um, boxer engine. Yeah. It's really, really low down. It's down by the foot pegs practically. And that's the same thing. The centre, you know, the, a lot of the mass is actually below the point where it's easy to control. So maybe by standing up in the pegs then, you raise as much of the centre of mass as you can with your own body to compensate for the fact that a lot of the bike is very low. Oh, okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We're, before we get into that here. So, okay. that that Because this <laughs> is at the heart of what we're talking about here. Now, we, we've talked about this center mass, center gravity, and the fact that it's, it's um, you know, better to have it all in the middle. Okay. We understand this. It makes the bike easier, more nimble to handle. When we stand up, what is happening there? What are we doing to the center of gravity? Well, if you don't mind, Chris, I'll take that one. It's um, yeah, please. I've got nothing. <laughs> it, it's like if you if you have a two hundred kilo bike and a one hundred kilo rider, just for simplicity. There's nothing you can do to change where the bike has its centre of mass. It's always going to be it's dependent upon the design and structure of it. The motorcycle itself. You're talking about there. Yeah. yeah, you you as a rider, you're thirty. You're like thirty percent of that mass. What you can do is stand up in the pegs, and you can lift half your body weight significantly higher than the centre of mass of the bike. So you can lift the combined centre of mass of rider and bike. You can raise that by maybe a foot or so um, over what it would be if you were sat in the saddle. Why would that be an advantage? To raise your center of gravity. That's an interesting question. Yeah, because it, it's, it's not it, it, like as far as I understand it, it's not in the raising of center of gravity. Matter of fact, I would see that as a negative if it weren't for what was no. connecting the two together. Not necessarily. Okay. Because as I said already, where the mass is centered around, so where all the mass is is brought in and focused around the center of mass, that body, if you like, that unit will rotate in any direction very quickly. If the mass is stretched away from the centre of mass, it takes much longer to rotate. So, for example, if you want to give yourself more time for control inputs to work on the bike, for the bike, if the bike was going to fall over left or right, if, this, if you can bring the centre of mass higher, it will take longer to fall over than it would if the centre of mass was lower. So you think about balancing a pencil on the end of your finger. If it's a short pencil and you try and balance it, you need to move really quickly, otherwise it will fall over. If you take a longer stick, like a broom handle or something, and balance it on your finger, you've got much more time to react because it takes longer to fall over. Because the centre of mass is higher. This is kind of like a sailboat without a mast, and then you put a mast on it, and it becomes more stable in the chop. Yeah, 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 pretty much, yeah. 
Okay. There's, there's different effects there, but it's the same kind of idea, yeah. You're slowing down. It's what you would call the, the, the roll moment. We call it a moment in physics. So this reluctance or acceptance of some something to turn is called a roll moment. So in essence, what we're talking about here is, is really what we talked about with loading our motorcycles up. You know, it's almost doing the same sort of thing, is, 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 except we're moving the weight upward instead of uh, front to back, outward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let's just start with, uh, or, go, or go back to this rather. So Chris, talk about the advantages you feel when you're standing on the pegs. I need to remember to fear that I am, this is adventure rider radio, not enduro bike rider radio. Um, so in my mind, I'm going to pretend I'm riding my 1290, my 890 the whole time here. Um, a greater range of movement is, is a big part of it. Um, because of the design of an adventure bike, you know, I, I can't sit all the way forwards right up on the steering head, something like I'd like to at times. There's just, there's fuel tanks and air boxes and things in the way. So a greater range of movement is a big part of it. Um, I feel like, uh, obviously, I have the suspension in my legs, but more so the suspension and the movement in my hips. Uh, the, the ability to fold and rotate through my hips more is, is a big advantage to it. And probably, uh, uh, although I hasten to admit it, probably more influence over my foot pegs, more, more ability to drive down through my pegs. Hence the uh, whole... Oh, oh. I would say that's the thing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Even even though when I'm sitting down, I'm still really push. It's still an active dynamic sit. I'm pushing through my foot pegs. I'm changing my weight. It's not just, you know, when, park it and plant you, sort of thing. When you're on your enduro bike, you can actually stay lower down in the saddle and you can throw your knee into the side of it and you can create yeah. the same weight shift that you need. On the bigger mass of the adventure bike, you're not getting enough torque, if you like. You're not getting enough roll moment onto the bike. By doing that, you have to stand up and apply more of your body weight to get it over. So, Chris, what you're saying is the reason you stand up on an adventure bike is because it's an adventure bike. It's not It's not yeah. necessarily because that you want to do something with a motorcycle. It's to overcome the fact that this is a big, heavy turd, I guess you could say. No, it's not a turd. It's a wonderful invention. Um, uh, but no, you're right. Like, I, I definitely, I stand up significantly more on my adventure bike than I do on my smaller bike. Yeah. So, and again, it, yeah, it gets blurry because adventure bikes are anything from a XT250 up to a 1200, 1290 sort of thing. Sure. Um, for me, the way I kind of differentiate it and it, the way I try and split it up in the schools um, is where you can sit relative to the foot, to the swing arm pivot. So if I can sit over or in front of the swing arm pivot, I'll do way more sitting down. If I can't, I've got to sit behind it. I'll do much, much more standing up. And generally, the the, the design of the you know the bigger bikes, the the twin cylinder bikes, there are more sit behind the swing arm pivot setup, just from purely from a packaging point of view. But yeah, on the uh, on the big bike for sure, I'm definitely standing up way more than I would do on my on my little bike. Chris, you come from a trial riding background. Did you have a seat on your bike? My trials bikes? Yeah. Uh, no. Right. No, I didn't. There's no seat. So why? So because it's a totally different sport. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with absolutely no concern for speed whatsoever or efficiency. Um, so when I got into yeah, my, my back, 
background was trials. I only rode trials until I was 16. I'd never ridden a go fast bike. And then I got a bit bored of trials and started getting more into enduros and that sort of stuff. And well-meaning advice from some of the older guys in the club that I joined. Uh, Chris, you're going to do really well at this because you ride standing up and you should ride standing up all the time. So I, at that point, had literally zero idea of how to ride a motorbike sitting down. I rode the entire Australian four-day enduro champs standing up on the foot pegs because every time I tried to sit down, I crashed. And I got absolutely hosed by guys that hardly ever stood up. Uh, they were on the seat most of the time, especially in the real key race special test situations. So I had to take a really huge backward step in terms of my speed down the trail to learn how to ride sitting down properly. So it's quite, it's, it's a common one in dirt bike riding. Guys, oh, these, these kids, they never stand up. So I'll take their seat off them and they'll make them go and do like a three-hour trail ride with this, without their seat. That'll teach them how to stand up. I had to do the total opposite. I had to go, right, I'm going to do this whole ride and I'm not going to stand up once because I, I was so lacking in that whole whole side of it. And I think that's why a reason why I get quite passionate about this now. Like There are times when you need to be standing up, but there are times when you need to be sitting down too, especially with the smaller single-cylinder bikes. Can, can I inject a little thought there? Always. Simplistic way. Sitting down is something you can you get more control sitting down if you're going faster. Yeah. If you're going slower, you need to stand up to get more control. So it's not the yeah, other way true. around. It's not like it's not like if I sit down I'll go faster or if I stand up I'll go slower or vice versa. It's if you're able to ride at a higher speed across a certain kind of terrain, you'll mm. sit lower and you'll have the control. If you're not able to ride at that speed, you have to stand up and you'll go slower. That's a really good point, Mark. Yep. And that's why so, maybe you see so many uh, yeah. you see so many like Dakar racers sitting down. Mm-hmm. That's because they're fat. And- maybe that's a helpful point, Jim, really. At the end of the day, <laughs> if you're fast, you can sit down. If not, you have to slow down and stand up. Right. For me, that's a really interesting point there, Mark. I think, that's that you've nailed something quite important there. Well, well, it, it makes more sense than, than than what we've been talking about because when I think of the trials bike and I think of you standing on your trials bike and then I think of you standing on your adventure bike, you know, those, mm. those are two complete opposite ends of the scale weight wise. So mm. it can't just be that it's because it's the the adventure bike is heavy and we're wrestling with this. There has to be something more to it. Mm. Yeah, and speed makes perfect sense. That again, we're trying to we're sort of back to what we said at the start. We're we're overcoming the bike's uh, inherent instability at low speed. An interesting thing with that as well, which which Mark touched on. So your your body position, the the shape of your body, we, the way you stand on a trials bike is very very different to where you would stand on an enduro rally, high speed adventure bike sort of thing. Um, so with a trials bike, you're much more upright, and then you have those bigger uh, the the, the greater distance travel movements that you're talking about, Mark, which could give us more control in those low speed situations. And then when we're charging fast, uh, on the, on the higher speed bike, we're a lot closer to the bike, a lot more squatted down that more sort of attack position. Yeah. So Chris, what are the advantages then of standing? Oh, there, there are many, there's many, many great uh, advantages. Um, the, the obvious one is you get all that suspension travel in your legs. 
Um, so when you hit those bumps, uh, you're isolating your head uh, from from the bumps more. You've got all that extra travel in your in your body. Um, you have a greater dynamic range, so you can move your body, your head further, move your hips further, all that sort of thing, uh, and you are able to influence your foot pegs more. Can I can I add a little bit to that, Chris? Um, Please do. I think it's exactly what you're saying, but one of the reasons for it is when you're hitting those bumps hard, the faster you're going, those bumps are hitting you more quickly. And in order to be able to react to them, you need to kind of be in a position where your body can move quickly and react. So I think as you hit those bumps more quickly, you go down lower because you can react quicker. As you hit those bumps more slowly, you come up a little mm. bit because you need more time to react to them. Mm. So there's kind of a relationship between the dynamic of your body and the dynamic of the terrain that you're hitting. And the two are a bit independent, in, interdependent. Our example here is, is low speed, right? We're talking adventure bikes, low speed maneuvering <laughs> through, through not, not high speed. So let's, let's, let's stick okay, with that. Sorry, yeah, so Chris, you said leg suspension and, and really what you're describing, I think is, is weight transfer. You're able to white, transfer your weight when we're standing. Yeah. These are some of the advantages of standing up and you get that on whether it's an adventure bike or whether it's a trials bike. It's really the same thing for both, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and at, at the risk of muddying the waters, I think it's important to recognize like a high end rider, even though when they're sitting down, they're not just sitting there. They're, there's a lot going on. There's still a lot of weight transfer, a lot of push down through the foot pegs, locked in through their ankles. There's still a heck of a lot going on. It's not just, I'm tired. I'm going to sit down now. So, Mark, the the uh, the idea of the leg suspension and weight transfer, for, from a physics point of view, does that make sense? That that's that's the advantage of standing up. Absolutely, because the when you stand up, you have a wider range that you can move your own your own mass over the bike, left, right, forwards, backwards. So you can exercise much more influence of mass control over the bike if you're standing up. If you're sitting down, you can apply weight side to side or you can kind of hunch yourself forward a little bit or backwards a little bit, but you haven't got anywhere near the same controls if you actually stood up and really... It's a bit like um, surfing or windsurfing or, or being on a boat. You, you, the, the way your brain works to keep your balance changes completely when you go on the water. Anybody who stands on a boat, the brain goes into a complete different balance mode you start using your feet and your hips to balance which you don't need to do on the land because the land is fixed and solid as soon as you go onto water everything's moving around and you have to keep your hips and you have to keep your center of gravity in the right place otherwise you fall over and i think it's the same kind of thing when you're on that adventure bike ride that you need to keep that dynamic uh, for me it's about hips i don't know what you think chris but i think hips are very important the most important joint in your body, yeah. Apart from your yeah. right wrist, obviously. <laughs> I mean, you're not talking just joints, though. You're, you're talking about like weight. You're using weight distribution with your hips. Your butt. Yeah, I think I, I think when you when your knees and your hips are where you can really influence where your mass goes, and you can't do that if your ass is planted on the seat. Right, like Shakira said, the hips don't lie. 
So, <laughs> so if I go back to this center of gravity, center of mass, which we now know is the exact same thing. It, it, when you stand mm-hmm. up, you, I assume, are raising your center of gravity, center of mass, but yep. you're separating them slightly. Sorry? But you're doing two th- you're doing two things, Jim. Right. That's it's exactly right. But that's what I was gonna ask you. So so we're not yeah. just doing that. We're not just raising it, we're doing more. Can you talk about the no. physics behind that? By by raising it, you're giving yourself more control over it. Because you've spread the mass out over a wider range. And that range of mass mass now becomes in, under control of your muscles, not the fact that you're just glued to the bike in one spot. So now you have more chance, the further away you move your own mass from the mass of the bike, the more chance you have to influence the bike with subtle movements of your own body. Why? If you're down lower, well, because if you're down lower close to the bike's mass, the distance between your mass, your centre of mass and the bike's centre of mass is quite small. So it's so the influence of your mass, the influence of your mass over the bike is less. If you raise up, the influence of your mass over the bike is higher. Four times the distance. It's like, right? a, it's like using a, a, a torque wrench. You know, you just take a longer bar. So if you want to be able to apply more force with your body, you stand up. You've, you've effectively got a longer lever. Hey, Chris just had. He, he just was talking formulas there. Sorry, say that again, Chris. But uh, Mark will probably laugh at me. This is you. You do the formulas. I'll I'll shut up. Um, and four times the just di- four times the distance, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Talk. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Four, so, four, four times the distance from the action point. Yeah. So we we have a lot of advantages here. Um, we we have, and you said, Mark, more control by standing mm-hmm. up on the on the adventure bike. So everything that we've talked about so far leads to standing on the adventure bike is better. Now, hang on, hang on. Let me go back to Chris here first. Now, Chris, when is standing up not advised? When do you tell people don't stand up? Um, so to start off with, I was, I'll concede the point. Yes, generally low speed, difficult riding, technical riding on a big adventure bike. Yeah, you're much better off standing up. I'll give you that one. I'm going to put my enduro hat away. Um, just to try and make this a little bit more simple. Um, the benefits of the, uh, the seated position stuff for adventure riding is crunching out the case. Um, so if it's like smoother riding, more high speed, uh, you know, it's like third, fourth gear, ad- adventure travel sort of stuff, gravel road, dirt track sort of stuff. Um, you can just be so much more efficient sitting down. Uh, when the speed picks up and you're straining against the wind and you're going really fast down that road, you're burning so much energy in that standing position without really needing, reaping any real benefits from it. Um, the classic mistake is, you know, you'll see guys uh, riding in a group, riding down the dead straight tar road. Um, the tar asphalt road finishes, turns into gravel, still dead straight. You could do 140 kilometers an hour down it in a Toyota Corolla. But everyone stands up because we're adventure riders and we ride standing up on our adventure bikes. And it's there's no benefit to it, really. No huge tangible benefit, but it's a big, big waste of energy that would be better deployed later in a more difficult situation. That's my take on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think coming from a racing background is an excellent point because um, you're conserving energy and you certainly have to when you're racing. And I'm sure that's where it must come from. But I mean, it would play into anyone's, especially if you're not. I know you're in shape, Chris. A lot of riders are not. And it, that would really strain your resources, your, your valuable, probably Absolutely. minuscule resources, if you're trying to stand all the time. I like the expression that the juice has got to be with the squeeze. <laughs> I can give my novice rider view of that, exactly that. I mean, for me, I'll stay sitting down because I can cover more mileage by sitting down. But when the terrain gets difficult and I need more control, I'll stand up. And another thing we haven't touched on yet, also, if if I need to see further down the track, if I need to mm. look over a rise or, or assess just the, 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 the quality of the terrain, I'll stand up to give myself a better view. You'll do that on the asphalt as well at times, right? On the, on the tar road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of a, yeah. what, what, where is that tractor? Or what is happening mm. on this one-lane bridge? And yeah, yeah. That mm. definitely there is... So it, the, there isn't there isn't a single solution. It's both of both are the right things to do. It's about knowing when to do them. And that's my point. You've got to get yeah. good at both sides of it and be able to deploy both <laughs> sides of it when when it's the right time for you. Don't yeah, yeah, don't put yourself in a basket of going, I'm a stand up rider or I'm a sit down rider. Go, right, let's get mm. both sides of this going and understand the benefits to both. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that you're making there about both. Uh, give an example, Chris, of where you would sit down and that would be an advantage on, on your adventure bike, other than chewing up the miles. Um, a decent hill climb. So come, I imagine you're coming out of the corner, a switchback uphill climb sort of thing, you know, mountain road sort of thing. The I want to get my weight back to drive that back tire into, the, into that loose rocky gravel, drive myself forwards, for me to hang right out the back like that standing up is going to be so hard on my arms and it's going to be potentially putting me a, a quite a long way off balance. Um, in an absolute extreme situation, I'll do it. But again, most of the time, the juice is not worth the squeeze. So I'll sit down right on the back of the seat, plant that back tire into the ground. And Jim, that, that's a hugely important point Chris has just made there. Because um, there are some things you can't do when you're on your feet. And what Chris is talking about there is really putting the centre of mass, the centre of gravity, really back towards the back of the bike, really over the back wheel. And if you've just got the four contact points, the two pegs and the two, the two handlebars, there's nothing you can do to push the weight of the bike, the weight, the weight, the centre of mass of the bike backwards. You're still applying that force through the bars and through the pegs. But if your arse makes contact with the seat, you can ply your weight further back than the pegs allow you to. And so sitting is important then. So coming back to Red Bull Romaniacs, that's why we're planting our asses on the seat as well. We're, we're yeah. doing it for efficiency, yeah. but we're also doing it just to push and heave that back tire into the ground to make it grip. Be, because no, no, just you to be can't clear do with that. This, it, you, you can't go further back through the, through the foot pegs. Now, just to be clear with this, is, is this because and you're talking about you can't go farther back because when you're standing on the foot pegs and holding onto the bars, is this just because physically you can't hold yourself up as you're hanging that far back? Is that you, what you're referring to? Or you can't actually... No, physically you can't apply the force. If your four contact points with the bike are the two ends of the handlebars and the two foot pegs, 
wherever you put your body, you can't put weight further back. Okay. Now, now this is a good point. I'm glad you're bringing this up. I want to dig into this because now I think Chris would, would, would probably say that those four contact points, really the only ones that are bearing any weight are the pegs. Am I right, Chris? Because if if you're pulling on the handlebars, you're not riding properly. Again, exception to every good rule. So if if we're coming back to this uh, turning, going up this rocky switchback hill sort of thing, I'm going to have a lot of pull, a lot of load through my handlebars at that point. Um, because that's going to allow me to get that weight further back to put that traction to the back wheel. So that extra effort of holding on through my bars like that, that juice is worth that squeeze. So I'm going to sacrifice a bit of energy through my arms, a bit of extra work through my arms to try and create some traction so I don't have to push my bike up the hill. Um, I, I, I'm really interested to hear what Mark had to expand on this a bit more because you know I, I know – well, Just that, like that, I know that, the sun will rise, that pushing my hips back puts more weight when I'm standing, puts more weight into the back wheel. Right. Now, now let me just set this question up so it's very clear what we're talking about here. So we're talking about yeah. standing on the foot pegs and shifting weight either front, back, or side to side. Okay. And does that change the weight on the motorcycle? So what are we doing there? We all understand that we do it to balance, but is it actually loading up? In other words, if you're, you're leaned forward still standing on the pegs without pushing on the bars I'm talking about, are you actually adding weight to the front wheel and vice versa to the rear wheel? Mark? Chris is going to hate this, but the answer is no. Oh, come on. What a load of rubbish. <laughs> Shut this guy off. This off. is ridiculous. No, wait, 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 wait. Because it's, it's basically because it's not that simple. There are two ways in which you transfer force from your body into the chassis to apply it to the ground. One is static and the other is dynamic. So when you're in a static situation, you're trying to move your weight around on the bike, you cannot apply force other than through the pegs or through the bars because you're not touching anything else. So there's Mm -hmm. nothing else you can do because the force is is applied through the contact points. And the force Mm -hmm. you apply is only the force of, this is the static case, it's only the force of gravity pulling. And gravity will just pull you through your contact points. You have no choice over that. Wherever you think you're moving, you're not going to change the situation. Gravity is going to pull you through those contact points. However, what Chris is talking about is when you have your weight on the pegs and you push on the pegs and you pull on the bars, you're creating a pitching torque on the bike. Mm-hmm. You're actually you're actually pulling the front of the bike up and pushing the rear of it down by trying to rotate it, and that's a different thing to changing your weight distribution. So what feels like you're it feels like you're putting the weight to the back. What you're really doing mm-hmm. is is sort of setting up a bit of a lever situation using your butt as a counterweight. Yeah, yeah, that's no, a, that's no, exactly what no, it feels like. What I'm it, trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying you're wrong, Chris. I'm just explaining they're two different, we would say, in physical yeah, yeah. regimes. Yeah. One yeah. is a static thing where you move your weight around and there's only so much you can do. What you're doing is a dynamic thing. You're actually applying a rotational force to the bike by effectively, and you don't realize you're doing it, when you push down on the, the pegs to try to get that back wheel to dig in, you're actually also pulling up on the bars. And okay. you're oh, so, the bike. 
just to stop you there, I, I completely am aware of that, and that's something we actually talk about in the schools. Like we're literally trying to rotate the chassis to drive the back tire into the ground more. So what mm-hmm. I thought was blasphemy to start off with, you're completely right. You're, you're, you're on the money. I was wrong. You're right. But that's a dynamic thing. You can't sustain that. You can, you can, you can do it as a dig in, but you can't keep it going because it's just a, a, a changing force you're applying to allow you to get through a moment where you need extra grit, but you can't keep that going. Well, Mark, if if you're hanging back off, is that not setting up the load to the rear anyway? Even if you weren't moving, if, if you slide your butt back and you're sort of levering the weight onto the rear, is I, I don't see it necessarily being uh, having to be dynamic. It, it, to me, it would it would appear uh, at a static view that it would still add weight to the rear. Yeah, it does. But what you have to think about is really you're pulling up on the bars. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's what it's all about. It's all setting up this lever. Yeah. This is really interesting yeah. because it, it brings me to the next thought process, which is that peg weighting, when you lean a bike over, and we're talking slow speed again with an adventure bike, When we're and I don't think it matters the bike at this point, but when you're going slow speed, you know, crawling speed, would it matter if I put my weight on the outside peg or the inside peg as far as the effect on the motorcycle and my traction? Absolutely. Why? Well, <laughs> go on, let Chris. What, Chris, you, uh, what, what's your what's, what's your experience of that situation, Chris? Well, in a in a real low speed situation, uh, it's as much sort of counterbalancing to keep your keep your balance and stop the bike from falling over as it is traction. Um, yeah, well, yeah, but that, are you talking about using your butt to counterbalance? But butt and foot peg, yeah. But but what I'm saying is let, let's forget let's take the butt out of the equation because because I think it's it's very obvious if you you stand on the on the upper yeah, peg the okay. outside peg your butt's going to be farther out that's an advantage let's let's set that aside and just mm-hmm. talk about the application of weight to the foot peg sorry hang so on you, you let me set mark. this up a little bit easier to understand let's imagine we're going across a side hill okay so the hill's angled the the hill goes yep. up on our left down on our right we're going straight across it. Would it matter as we're and we're moving slowly? Would it matter if we put our weight on the the inside peg, which would be the peg closest to the ground, or the outside peg? From my perspective, it, it matters greatly. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and that riding across the hillside situation, I would be essentially standing on one leg, which would be my my downhill leg. Right. The outside yeah. one. Yeah. The outside. And yeah. And that's absolutely true. So that is what you would call a traverse. You know, when you're going across the slope, mm-hmm. you're in a traverse. Mm-hmm. So if you, there's, there's two things to think about. You're talking about going, traversing a hill, a slope, and you're also talking about doing it slowly. Mm-hmm. So what influence do the pegs have when I do that? So the first thing to think about is that the slope of the hill, if you were to flatten that hill down and make it horizontal like it was flat ground, effectively then the bike would be leaning over so traversing a hill is exactly like going around a corner the forces are the same it's just that you you've raised the ground so that it's actually on a slope and the question then is how do i take the line that i want to take the only thing i can do is i can apply weight to the bike in order to get it to follow the line that i want Now, if the bike was stationary, wasn't going anywhere, so we're talking about slow speeds here, the ultimate slow speed is not moving at all. If the bike was stationary, 
and I apply weight on one peg or another, the bike is simply going to fall over that way. Nothing else is going to happen. If I apply weight to my left foot, it's going to fall to the left. If I apply weight to my right foot, it's going to fall to the right. When we're moving, the only reason it doesn't do that is because these other forces are, are at work, these gyroscopic and these frictional forces are at work. So as soon as we've got any forward motion, we can apply weight one side or the other without actually falling over. But we're still doing something. Something has to be happening as a response to what we're doing. And what's happening is that the bike is behaving in a way that's reacting to our transfer of weight. And by weighting the outside peg, what we're effectively doing is causing the front wheel, if, if I'm going, if I've got the uphill to my left and I weight the outside peg, that means I'm putting more weight on my right leg, the front wheel is turning slightly to the right as a response to that, which means instead of turning up the hill, it's going to carry on in a straight line and follow the track of the traverse by keeping my weight on the outside. Yeah, I, I don't know how, if that comes across clearly. Yeah, well, let, let me ask this a little bit differently. Let me ask this a little bit differently. I have to go back to the 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 other example. We're we're crossing a hill. Mm -hmm. We're go, we're we're traversing the hill. Okay, uh, and, yeah. and the uphill's on our left. The downhill is on our right. As we go okay. across here, we and we're going at a, at a slow speed. As we go across here, will it matter if, if as long as I'm balanced? Will it matter if I apply the weight to the outside peg or the inside peg, provided I do whatever it takes to keep the bike balanced at the time? No. In, in fact, in fact. What matters is you have to apply weight to the outside peg, otherwise you will go uphill. Hmm. So you're saying there's no way to ride that hill using the weight no. on the inside peg? No. You have to apply the weight to the outside, otherwise the bike will steer uphill. It's the same as being in a corner. Chris? Uh, you, you could... I totally agree with what Mark's saying, but you could cheated by riding along, waiting inside peg whilst counter-steering through your bars, either consciously or subconsciously, to not turn up the hill. But that would be cheating. Yeah, yeah that would be cheating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I'm sure there's someone listening here going, but but I do ride along mm -hmm. the side of hills with my way to the inside foot peg all the time, and it it's okay. Yeah. And bike, but if you don't have any other input, the bike will turn to the uphill if you're waiting at the inside foot peg. It will probably slide out yeah. if there's a lack of traction as well. Yeah, you, 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 yeah, you'll lose the back. <laughs> mm. But as, as riders, we're so intuitively making all these subtle corrections all the time, we're not aware that we're doing it. So when we, when we think it doesn't matter whether we weight the inside peg or the outside peg, it's because we haven't realized that when we do that, we're compensating with some other input. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, without compensating with any other input, if you don't weight the outside peg as you traverse the hill, the bike will steer up the hill. And as Chris said, eventually you'll lose the back. I wouldn't recommend this. and Don't anyone do this and sue me. Where I do my training uh, uh, on the farm down the road, we've got it's about a 10-acre flat paddock with nothing in it. And I set my cruise control as low as the bike will let me set it, and I ride around standing up not touching anything else other than my foot pegs. Just, this is not trying to teach anyone. This is me playing around. 
And it's really interesting what weighting your pegs does with absolutely no other input in the bike. Uh, it's it's a fun thing to play around with, but it's kind of sketchy because you're riding around oh. with your hands behind And I want to see the video of that, Chris, because that's exactly <laughs> what we're talking about. That is exactly yeah. what we're talking about, especially weighting the pegs without any other input. Especially because he just added mm. with his hands behind his back. Just as an added thing, I'm going to put my hands behind my back. Makes recovery well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to cheat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that that's for steering. Now, Chris did say you can cheat. You could weight the inside peg and you could steer downhill and sort of hold your position as you cross that hill. Would it matter for traction? So we're on now. Now we're on a, a greasy hill. Yes. Would it matter for traction yes. and why? You you would lose the traction in the front wheel by doing Chris's cheat. What does Chris think about that? I think you'd lose the front wheel if you did that too, too much. Oh, absolutely. Your handlebar input would cause you to lose the front wheel and your lack of weight yeah. on the outside foot peg would cause you to lose the rear and it would be lucky dip to me which would happen first. Okay, hang on one second. Both at the is, same time. You just said that that last part you said was the weight not on the, the lack of traction not because you don't have your weight on your outside peg. That's what I'm interested in, that part of it to begin with. Yeah. Mark? Yeah, so I don't know well, what we, works from Mark's side things here, but for me, 100%, I'll be pushing on that outside foot peg to try, and the feeling I have, uh, the feeling is that that is weighting that back tyre. Maybe it's not in reality, which is where Mark comes in, that, but that, I know if I fe- ease that. That's the feeling I get too, is that you're you're pushing the yeah. tyres into the hills is sort of what the feeling I have. Yeah, yep. I, I mean, it, this is what we feel intuitively. What we have to do is try and, think through that to see, well, which is the actual thing we're doing that makes a difference? Because we're doing lots of things intuitively with our bodies. Which is the one that's really making the difference? And in this case, when you say you're getting uh, better traction or you're losing the traction, it's because, this is a little bit complicated, but oh, good. The, 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 the front and the rear wheel are each trying to turn their own corner. And the combination of that means that the bike turns some kind of average corner that's based on the two corners, both the front and the rear, are trying to to steer. When you counter-steer, as you were talking about, Chris, so you could put the weight on the inside, but what you do is actually counter-steer to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. When you counter-steer on the bars you're causing the bike to lean either to the left or the right. When you apply weight to the foot pegs, you're causing the front wheel to either turn to the left or the right. And it's that Mm -hmm. mixture, that balance between the two, between the counter steer, which is causing the lean, and the weight on the left or the right peg, which is causing the front wheel to turn, which is giving you the traction you want. So this has more to do with line of travel for the tires than it has to do with application of weight. I mean, I understand the application of weight is making it happen. Yeah. It's not line of travel of tires per se. It's, it's, it's actually slip that the the contact patch of the tire is, is in a constant struggle because the corner is trying to send the two contact patches around one curve and each individual wheel is trying to follow a slightly different curve. And so the two contact punches of the tyres are always fighting. And on a loose surface, that fight is quite dramatic. Can I uh, jump in here? Mm-hmm. 
Jim, when you're talking about looking for traction, you're looking about managing the slip angles between the two wheels. And we're right back to what we talked about last time. Yes, yeah, out of all the all the super confusing <laughs> conversations I've had with Mark, which has left me just scratching my brain and feeling like a moron, mm. the number one thing has been the slip angle stuff. That's just that's probably been my biggest takeaway out of all the chats I've, I've been able to have with Mark. Well, I think this is really interesting because both, you know, Chris, you, you described that way and I, I described that way. And I think a lot of riders would, they feel like they're putting weight on the outside peg and we're shoving the tires into the hill. So it's all about yeah. where you're putting your weight. And in fact, it's not, it's about mm. the, the track of the tires, but where, where the tire is yeah. going. So it's the, it's the, it's a slip angle. Yeah. You, you feel like you're shoving weight around because it's a very visceral kind of feeling. Actually, what's really happening is a much more subtle thing. You're lining up slip angles between the front and the rear wheel. And, of course, when you get that right, you feel a sudden improvement of grip, mm-hmm. you know, which is a very visceral thing. But it's, it's that subtle point in the middle is actually uh, it's a much finer and a much more balanced thing than you think it is. But you apply a big weight in, you counter-steer maybe pulling the right hand, you... Uh, um, realign the front wheel by weighting the right side peg and you feel suddenly you've got grip and that's all very dynamic mm. so you're moving around and it feels very whoa yeah I've got it I've got the grip the subtlety of that is you're actually lining the slip angles up you're reducing the slip angle of the front wheel and you're aligning the slip angles of the rear and the front wheel together so they're both working in the same direction so you've got much more control than you would have if they were fighting each other Okay, so um, Chris, going back to the, the stand up, sit down thing, you tell your, your yeah. students that they should learn how to do both and they should master both, which obviously makes perfect sense, I think, to all of us. We can see your point with that. Is there a rule of thumb now? I mean, after we've discussed this in particular, I mean, would that rule of thumb be to stand up in technical slow speed maneuvers? I think that the rule of thumb uh, varies depending on your confidence level. Uh, and your your ability level. Um, so in the early days, like when you get into these difficult, challenging situations, my advice would be do whatever makes you feel the most comfortable. If you feel more confidence to ride through these situations sitting down, that's probably what you should do. For me, being an ex-trials rider and a ex, well, yeah, come on, ex-enduro rider, I'm going to go into this standing up for sure. Um, I've got more movement. I can. There's so much more I can do. But if you're not confident and you're not stable uh, in those positions, that standing up, you probably should sit down. And I think uh, an obvious one here is river crossings. There's a really big uh, question, guys. Should you you stand up or should you sit down for river crossings? I think if you're confident, you can stand up, and it's there are benefits to it for sure. But as soon as I start to lose my balance. In a river crossing, I blow my feet off and I sit down just like everybody else. So if you're coming into that situation to start off with with a lack of confidence, you probably should be on the seat to start off with. Why do you do that? Why do you sit down? What, what do you gain? <laughs> I don't know. My brain just tells me to do it. Honestly, I can, what, I, I can, what I gain is both feet on the ground. Uh, I can paddling. in there a little bit, I think. Please, um, please. Yeah, what, what happens, I think, in those situations... If you've got your your backside on the seat, you so when 
in the same way as you can move your center of mass around to influence the bike, when the bike is reacting to terrain, it can throw your center of mass around and set you off mm-hmm. balance. And the way you can stop that is by putting your ass back down on the seat. You mm-hmm. stabilize yourself. So when the terrain is c- controlling you, you're better off sitting. When you want to control the terrain, you're better off standing. Mm. I mm-hmm. like that. That that's good. So so really, what you're doing is you're it, you know because it's the same <clears throat> argument, right? You stand up to do just that to have more control of your motorcycle, mm. uh, or what you're saying now is you sit down to have more control over your motorcycle. It depends on if you are in control or if the bike and the terrain are. Mm. Because yeah. that's why you're sitting How down, you right, Chris? You're saying first? you do it out of, out of yeah, like you do it automatically. It's because you're, actually, you're, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a I guess it's a subconscious, instinctive understanding of what Mark's just said. I'm up on the pegs. This is going great. It's going great. It's going great. You spoon mm. off that one slimy rock you didn't see. Instinctively drop the seat. Mm-hmm. And and like I know you for a ri- like as a rider, you're 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 a top level rider, so you're not flopping down to hold on, you know, because people do that, right? They flop down, they hold on, they give it gas, and hope that they make it through. And sometimes they do. I've seen the videos, but but you're actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're regaining control. You're doing something to get in control again. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I never lose control. But, no, but, but that's the idea uh, of you sitting down, right? You're you're gaining control yeah, yeah, yeah. with that. Yep, and it's it's not a conscious thing in any way. It's just a laugh. Um, <laughs> Drop to the seat. Yeah. And I'd be absolutely lying if I said I uh, I, I didn't and do that. I, I promised I wouldn't do this, but to bring it back to like world championship level uh, off-road racing, you'll see those guys enter a, a challenging rock section. They'll start off on their pegs. As soon as they ping off a rock or start to lose control, though, even those guys, the best guys on the planet, will drop to the seat, often blow the feet out, and just pin it to the to the end of that rock section, just and just try and get out of there, which is yeah exactly what you're talking about, Jim. So it should maybe that should not be seen as a bad thing. If the best guys of the world are doing it, there must be some reasons for it. Is that sort of a give up thing, though? I mean, uh, <laughs> even no, the way you, no, you said no, it there, it, it, it's almost like a thing where you're packing and you're saying, "All right, never mind. I'm just going to sit down and and just use the throttle and hope that um, you know the gyroscopic effect and speed gets me through this." I exactly, don't think it, be, it can be called. That's good physics too. It is. <laughs> I don't think it can be called a give up thing because imagine we come back to our, our world endure champs guy. This dude's been training for this his entire life and his whole business and his whole life is based around getting to the end of this rock section as fast as possible. That dude ain't giving up. Mm-hmm. He's doing something that instinctively he knows will work. And that's kind of basing what Jim's talking about here, like, you know, that guy understands it in an absolute center of his being that when it goes pear-shaped, drop to the seat and get out of there. That's not a given up. So why not do that to begin with then? Like, I mean, if that's the method that works, know. As, you know, as, as a, as, as a last know. resort, why not just do it right at the start? Why not use that method right from the start? Why not teach that as a method? The, the pin it and pray technique. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's, it's only got a certain timeline that it's going to work for, right? Um, so, yeah. and again, like we get, we're talking about racing dirt bikes for seconds here, not riding adventure bikes. And I would never recommend this on an adventure bike, um, especially because we don't know where we're going most of the time. But you'll enter that rock section with plan A. Plan A is up on the pegs, 
ankles locked in, squeezing with your knees, connected to the bike, yeah, go, 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 and you hold plan A for as long as you possibly can. And as soon as plan A isn't working anymore, you go to plan B, which is drop to the seat, <laughs> try and get out of there. <laughs> right, but- And it's for me, um, for me, I guess you're going to plan B because plan A isn't working for you anymore. You're unable to maintain and, and, and hold plan A. So the only other option is plan B. Yeah, I think it's a bit like if you were walking uh, across a narrow plank over a river, you, you, you'd you set out by balancing and trying to walk across it. But if you lost your balance, what you'd do is speed up and just trot for a little while, <laughs> get through it quickly, yeah. and then you'd slow down and go your balance again. But is I that, so. like from a, okay, Mark, from a physics point of view, does it make sense to do that? I mean, go back to, to Chris's example of the rider going in, standing up on his pegs, things go wrong, and he flops down and he gasses it. Is it logical? Is it a logical approach? Or is it just saying, what I was doing was the best I was doing. It didn't work. Now I'm just going to give it a chance and go for the lottery. That's what I was referring to. I think it's logical from a physics point of view, but I think that isn't the driving factor. I think the driving factor is psychology. Mm. Um, you know, and the way your brain works, that your, your brain will calculate its way through a situation for a while because it has to, and it has to do that. Say you're on a stretch of 15 minutes worth of difficult terrain. Your brain's going to really pick its way through. For the odd 10 seconds within that, where your brain can't cope anymore, it's just going to open the throttle and burst through and try and get to the next bit because it has no other option. So uh, for me, it, if, we come, if we say like plan A is up on the pegs, tidy, doing it you know the way you want the photo taken, and plan B is feed off the pegs, printing it, you're going to, in a long sustained rock session, you're going to flick between plan A and plan B. Mm. So you, you're, you're going to enter this rock session, plan A, yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Oh no, she's going wrong, plan B for a bit. And then the E is out for a second and you're going to gather the ship back up again, back up on your pegs, back to plan A and hold plan A as much as you can until plan B kicks in and, again. And yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the plan B, the, the sort of point and shoot strategy, gets you from one point to another. You still yeah, have to so, reassess then when you've got to that point what you're going to do next. But if you yeah, have no yeah. other option, you can shoot from one point to another and then rethink. Mm. You've you got to have a point to shoot. Over one jump. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, You've got to have a point to shoot too. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, I that's, that's what I'm saying about it's sort of a give up, you know, because the, the rider used all their skills to get to where they are. That failed. And now they, when I say give up, I mean, you know, the crack the throttle and hope that, well, maybe I can just chance my way through. And, yeah. and that seems like, mm. a, you know, I mean, it's not like. It, it might be like the rock climber who's steadily working their way up a rock face, but suddenly decides their only option is to jump to the next handhold. You, you don't make that your strategy to get up the mountain or to get up the cliff face, but occasionally that's, that's the way you have to go forward, you know. But it's I, definitely I think an it, A to B. Yeah, a mistake I fell into in my early days of writings, you know, coming from trials, I was obsessed with trying to do everything correct. You know, it's got to be clean, it's got to be tidy, it's got to be efficient, it's got to be feet on the pegs. Sometimes a bit of mongrel and a bit of smashy-bashy is often the best way through as well. Um, mm -hmm. And you like you watch some really, really fast riders, it's not always pretty. You know, we it, we have a rough-and-tumble sport, yeah. mm -hmm. and it's, it's easy and to get bogged down and trying to make things absolutely perfect and get that nice photo of that moment. But often the goal is just to get you and your bike through that rock section 
as as well as you possibly can. And sometimes that might get a bit ugly along the way. And that's okay. If you're moving forwards and you're making progress and you're still holding your momentum and your traction, do what you got to do. Yeah. But I, think, I think Chris's point is good because as, as human beings, you know, as riders, we're human beings too, kind of in a way. And um, you just have a basic intuition of how to get through a problem. And sometimes you think your way through that problem, you go through it slowly and you might stand up while you do that. Other times you look at the problem and you think, I'm not quite sure how to get through this. I'm just going to jump it. You know, I'm just going to literally crack the throttle and go. And that's what you do as human beings. You know, you have those options available to you. And and maybe that's why there isn't the, the no one answer, you know. I think the no one answer thing is what makes our sport so interesting as well, right? Like, you know, there's there's so many different ways to do it. There's so many different. There's a different scenario every time you start your motorbike, um, and that's what keeps us keeps us interested in it. And the only thing I would, you know, always come back to, which I know is contentious, uh, Jim, but you have to always remember that you turn the bars left and right in order to lean the bike over. When the bike leans, the two wheels try to follow independent paths that are dictated by the curvature of the wheels. And if you want to realign that, you have to put the weight on one peg or the other to realign it. And that's it. That's what we have to remember. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's my sense. take home. I know. It's really, it's not intuition tells you you're doing a lot of other things as well but whatever intuition is telling you that's really all you're doing basically just leaning the bike over mm. you lean the, the bike over yeah. the two wheels will you do that by counter steering the two wheels will follow their own line and then you can wait inside or outside in order to balance the way those two lines are fighting each other and you can improve the traction it's very interesting because it's something that I, I never thought of before that we're trying to align the, the two wheels. To me, it was about other things. Um, you know, we're, like we're, we're talking about, you know, transferring weight and, and putting weight on, on the side of the bike, et cetera, all to do with pushing down and getting traction. It's very interesting to realize that it's, it's really about aligning these two wheels and their paths that they, they go on. And I'm completely the same with you, Jim. Like it's it's exactly the same scenario in my head. Like I, I have all these things that I feel um, that I'm doing, and in reality, the feelings are good, and the, the feelings are something that you should chase. Um, but the actual physics of what's going on is, is very, very different. You know, Chris, do you do you have, have just through what we talked about today? Does it change any any of your thought process to to the way you ride, the way you teach? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I'm not as smart as Mark. So I've got to be really careful that when I start talking about the physics side of things, that it's actually in a beneficial way uh, to the student, not a, uh, adding to further confusion. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely uh, the slip angle side of things. That we talked about this before. For me, that was like, ah, oh, all this other stuff now makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely uh, something that I think a lot of your listeners could get some really good understanding of it, be digging in down deeper into that and understanding what's actually happening with your tires touching the ground and why they, why they slide out when that slip angle's too great, why they don't when the slip angle's all lined up. And for me, that was, uh, that connected a lot of dots and between 
what's actually happening to the bike and what my understanding and my feelings are. That was Chris Birch from his home in New Zealand and Mark Nesbitt from his home in the Netherlands. Uh, Chris's website is chrisbirch.co.nz. And Chris has some great instructional video programs he sells through Vimeo. All that info is on his website uh, and you can download those and get them right away. Of course, we've got all the links and some photos in the show notes for this episode on our our website, adventureriderradio.com, as well as a link to the other episode we did on peg waiting with Chris and Mark that I referenced as well. All in the show notes for this episode on adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show and if you've enjoyed what you heard today share it with a friend let other people know about it and if you're not doing it already I just want to remind you the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we need your support. Drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I hope you can Uh, my name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.